We're going to be in Galatians chapter 4, starting with verse 8 today. We're going to try and make it all the way down through verse 20. So Galatians 4, chapter 8, or chapter 4, verses 8 through 20. Uh, if you're using one of our um, Bibles that are in the pew there, it's going to be on eight, page 825. And if you're unfamiliar with the Bible, the large numbers are going to be the chapter numbers, and the small numbers are going to be your verse numbers. I'm going to be re- begin reading with verse 8. Formerly, when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not God's. But now that you have come to know God, or rather, to be known by God, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world, whose slaves you want to be once more? You observe days and months and seasons and years. I am afraid that I may have labored over you in vain. Brothers, I entreat you, become as I am, for I also have become as you are. You did me no wrong. You know that it was because of a bodily ailment that I preached the gospel to you at first. And though my condition was a trial to you, you did not scorn or despise me, but received me as an angel of God, as Christ Jesus. What then has become of the blessing that you felt? For I testify that, if possible, you would have gouged out your own eyes and given them to me. Have I then become your enemy by telling you the truth? They make much of you, but for no good purpose. They want to shut you out, that you, make, that you may make much of them. It is always good to be made much of for a good purpose, and not only when I am present with you. My little children, for whom I am again in the anguish of childbirth, until Christ is formed in you. I wish I could be present with you now and change my tone, for I am perplexed about you. Would you bow your heads in prayer with me? Father God, we thank you for your inspired word, that through it you speak to us and that it doesn't return to you void, that when we listen and your Holy Spirit opens up our hearts, it changes our lives, our very persons. And we ask that you would speak to us now through your word anew, that we would come to this text and find out what it is that you want to communicate to us by your Holy Spirit. Lord, we thank you that you've communicated to us in a perfect way, both in the Bible and in the person and work of your Son, Jesus Christ. We thank you that by placing our faith in him, we can have eternal life and be a part of your great and glorious kingdom. We pray all these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. Last week we spoke of adoption in our uh, adoption into the family of God, that we are sons of God. All of us, even the girls. So that they too could be adopted and be heirs to the estate. So, on the theme of adoption, I, I want to read to you, uh, to continue it a little bit, from Dr. Moore's book called Adopted for Life. Moore writes, When Maria and I at long last received the call that the legal process was over, and we returned to Russia to pick up our new sons, we found that their transition from orphanage to family was more difficult than we had first supposed. We dressed the boys in outfits that our parents had bought for them. We nodded our thanks to the orphanage personnel and walked out into the sunlight to the terror of the two boys. They had never seen the sun. They had never felt the wind. They had never heard the sound of a car door slamming or felt like they were being carried along a road at 100 miles an hour. I noticed that they were shaking and reaching back to the orphanage in the distance. Suddenly it wasn't a stranger asking them, Are they brothers? Now they seem to be asking the same question non-verbally but emphatically themselves. I whispered to Timothy, 
that place is a pit. If only you knew what's waiting for you. A home with a mommy and a daddy who love you. Grandparents and great-grandparents. And cousins and playmates. And McDonald's Happy Meals. But all they knew was the orphanage. It was squalid, but they had no other reference point. It was home. We knew the boys had acclimated to our home, that they trusted us when they stopped hiding food in their high chairs. They knew there would be another meal coming, and they wouldn't have to fight for the scraps. This was the new normal. They are now thoroughly Americanized, perhaps too much so, able to recognize the sound of a microwave ding from 100 yards away. I still remember, though, those little hands reaching for the orphanage, and I see myself there. Do you, as Dr. Moore, see yourself there in the back of the gospel car, reaching back for the orphanage because it's all that you've known? Reaching back to your former way of life, reaching back towards other gods, towards enslavement, towards idols. Are you hiding food in your high chairs? Paul's exhortation to the Galatians this morning is to do not turn back. Don't reach back to your former way of life, but become like he is, transformed in Christ. So the main idea of our message today is going to be, don't turn back, but become like Paul. Be transformed. Starting with verse 8, Paul writes, Formerly when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not gods. But now you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God. How then can you turn back to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world, whose slaves you want to be once more? Paul's not saying here that the Galatians don't know God. Of course, uh, they have confessed Him and they have eternal life. But he's pointing out, or the word here probably rather means uh, more importantly, that yes, they know God, but more importantly, they are known by God. Why then would they look back towards their former way of life? You know, the knowledge of God spoken of here is not some aloof or abstract or impersonal knowledge, but a real and intimate, warm knowledge. One that allows us to cry out by the Holy Spirit, Abba, or Daddy, as Jesus did unto the Father. You see, the accent here doesn't rest on the Galatians' knowledge of God, but on God's knowledge of the Galatians. I think Dr. Schreiner is helpful here. He writes, Even though it is true that believers have come to know God, there is a deeper reality that explains why they know God's saving love. Namely, God's knowledge of them. God's knowledge of His people harkens back to the Hebrew verb known for know, yada, where God's knowledge refers to His choosing of someone, the setting of His affection upon someone. Hence, He knew Abraham by choosing him to be the father of the Jewish people. He knew Israel, choosing them out of all the people groups of the earth. He knew Jeremiah before he was born, and hence appointed him to be prophet. So too, the Galatians have come to know God, because God first knew them, because He loved them, graciously chose them to be His own, because He set His affection on them, we're told in 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 3, that if anyone loves God, he does so because God first loves them, because he knows them. We sang it earlier. Oh, how I love Jesus because he first loved me. See, God does not love us because we're valuable in any way. We don't have to make ourselves lovable to God. He loves us, and 
It's not because we're beautiful, but because he has made us beautiful. I like how Timothy Keller puts it. The great and central basis of the Christian assurance is not how much our hearts are set on God, but how unshakably his heart is set on us. You are known by God, the creator of the sun and the stars and the sky and the valleys and the mountains, known by him personally. How amazing. Paul writes, how then can you turn back to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world whose slaves you want to be once more? Why do you look back towards your orphanage? Why do you look back towards slavery? Perhaps it's because we've never seen the sun or felt the wind. We've never known true freedom. And our wrists feel funny without the shackles. Our sins and our false gods may have kept us in bondage, but boy, were they comfortable. Why why do we find some of the things of this world so comfortable? Fancy cars, money. Why are these things comfortable? What cries out to us? I think it's because all men worship. We were designed to worship and to worship Jesus. Indeed, the fall ushered in a fracturing of everything, including the right worship of God. And now that everything has been thrown from harmony into chaos, our hearts whore after things that are weak and worthless, after idols. But what is an idol? An idol is anything that you look to to give you what only God can give you. An idol is anything that you look to to give you that which only God can give you. It's pursuit of these things, these weak and worthless things, that we become weak and worthless. Because indeed, we become like that which we worship. We're shaped like it. We're formed into it. And when we worship anything aside from Christ, we become weak and worthless. Without Jesus, indeed, we are all enslaved to sin and death, for only He can give life. We will worship wrongly until our hearts are reoriented to Him. Until we behold Christ as beautiful. Until we see and savor Jesus. Until we become sons out of our slavery. Why then do we look back? I think it's because the gospel seems too good to be true. It's this gift that's given freely but cost an infinite amount. And so, for some reason, we find ourselves, we are unworthy of this gift. And instead of rejoicing in the grace given by God and the fact that He knows us and has set His affection upon us, we look to ourselves and say, there must be something I can do to contribute to this. Much like the Judaizers. We have a hard time with Jesus plus nothing being everything. And we want to add to Jesus. We would say, all right, Jesus plus my performance will help me inherit the promise. It will help make me worthy of this sonship. Friends, that is a lie. It's the pathway back to slavery. Paul points out, verse 10, you observe days and months and seasons and years. I'm afraid I may have labored over you in vain. This is interesting. Paul is uh, pointing out that they're keeping Jewish customs. The, The Galatians are keeping Jewish calendar. And what he's doing here, as he's brought up the elementary principles of the world, this paganism that they were enslaved to, 
He's essentially saying that pagan worship to idols is the same as attempting to earn or contribute to salvation by adherence to the Jewish law. See what he's saying? Paul is saying those that are really, really Jewish, they're, they're adhering to the law, those Pharisees, these Judaizers, are just as damned as the pagans. They're believing the false gospel the same way that the pagans are believing no gospel. Remember earlier, all the way back in chapter 1, he says, any other gospel than the gospel that I preach to you is no gospel. And if you adhere to it, you should be anathema. Those that don't believe in Jesus Christ are accursed. And those that peddle this false gospel, that preach this false gospel, Paul essentially says they can go to hell because this truth is all that there is. Paul's showing us that both religion and irreligion do not work. Living lawlessly is slavery. Living ritually is slavery. Religion, slavery. Irreligion, slavery. You see, the irreligious and the religious both attempt to be their own savior, but in different ways. I think this is perhaps best illustrated for us in the parable of the two sons, uh, more often referred to, I think wrongly, as the parable of the prodigal son. It's in Luke chapter 15. I'm going to read it to you. It's Luke chapter 15, verses uh, 11, all the way down through 32. You, can, you don't need to turn there. You can just listen. And Jesus said, There was a man who had two sons. The younger of them said to his father, Father, give me a share of the property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all that he had and took a journey into the far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything... A severe famine arose in the country, and he began to be in need. So he went and he hired himself out to one of the citizens in the country, who sent him into the fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread? But I perish here with hunger? I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and he came to the father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion. And he ran and he embraced him and he kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Bring quickly the best robe and put it on him. Bring a ring and put it on his hand and shoes on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let us eat and celebrate. For my son was dead and he is alive again. He was lost and is found. They began to celebrate. Now his older son was in the field and he came and drew near to the house. He heard music and dancing. And he called to one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And the servant said to him, Your brother is come. Your father has killed the fattened calf because he has received him back safe and sound. But the elder brother was angry. He refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him. Come in. But he answered his father, Look, these many years I have served you, and I have never disobeyed your command. 
You never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him? And when he said to him, I'm sorry, and he said to him, Son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and to be glad, for this brother of yours was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. The parable is extremely pointed for a lot of reasons. Jesus tells this parable on the heels. He's inviting tax collectors and sinners to eat together with him. And the Pharisees are standing in the distance and they've got their arms crossed and their lips pursed. That's my interpretation. But they're angry and they're grumbling. He eats with tax collectors and sinners. He's unclean. What is he thinking? And Jesus responds to them by telling a series of parables. This is the the second of them. And really, the point of the parable, we often focus on... uh, the irreligious son, right? He goes wayward, he squanders his wealth, and then he's welcomed back into the father's arms rather than the elder brother. And it's funny because Jesus' emphasis is actually on the elder brother who remains outside. See, the younger brother eventually sees his need for the father and returns and is welcomed into a celebration. But the elder brother, he doesn't see his need. And he remains outside. Jesus is pointing at the Pharisees. He's saying, these tax collectors, these sinners that eat with me, they're coming in to the celebration, in to the kingdom of God. But you, O Pharisees, you don't see your need for me. You remain outside of the kingdom. Concisely, both sons want to control the father's wealth. Neither of them really want the father in the parable. Both are alienated from the father's heart. And both are invited to the feast. At the end of the story, though, the immoral son repents and goes in. While the moral one stays outside in anger. You see, the elder brother doesn't miss out on the celebration in spite of his goodness. But because of it. It's not his sin that creates the barrier between him and the father. It's the pride that he has in his moral record. It's not his wrongdoing, but his righteousness that is keeping him from sharing in the feast of the Father. Timothy Keller rightly says, If anything, the idolatry and slavery of religion is more dangerous than the idolatry and the slavery of irreligion, because it is less obvious. The irreligious person knows he is far away from God, but the religious person does not. The elder brother remains outside. The younger brother seeks to control his father's wealth without rule or regulation. The elder stays close. He seeks to control the father's wealth by never disobeying. In other words, the elder brother attempts to oblige the father. Both want control of the father's wealth, but neither want the father. Keller continues, The hearts of the two brothers were the same. Both sons resented their father's authority. Both sought ways of getting out from under it. They each wanted to get into a position in which they could tell the father what to do. Each one, in other words, rebelled. One did so by being very bad. But the other son rebelled 
by being extremely good. Both were lost. The point here is, you can rebel against God by breaking His rules, or you can rebel against God by keeping all of them diligently. In our rural context, I think that we often have more elder brothers than younger brothers. Though I assure you, there are both. My question is, are you an elder brother or a younger brother? Are you the religious type or the irreligious type? What are you prone to be enslaved to? What does your rebellion look like? Breaking the rules or keeping them? In what ways are your little hands reaching back towards the orphanage, towards slavery? With Paul, I want to urge you this morning, don't look back, but become like Paul. Behold Christ. Be transformed. Paul continues on the heels of verse 11 with verse 12. He says this, Brothers, I entreat you, become as I am, for I also have become as you are. You did me no wrong. This sentence is really interesting in the Greek because Paul actually starts it with the verb that means become. So he's saying, become, that's where his emphasis is, become as I am. Now, Paul's not super confident in himself. He's not saying, I'm way awesome, so you should try to be more like me. That's not what he's saying. He's saying, become as I am. Because I'm free from the law, I've become as you are. See, the Galatians are, are not Jewish, right? And so Paul's kind of saying, I became like you when I came to Christ. Free from the law and its tyranny. But since then, since you've been converted to Christ, you have returned to the law. You've returned to slavery. So now I urge you, basically, be less Jewish. Become as I, Paul, a Jew, am, like you. Free from the law. Free from this enslavement. Free from trying to perform our way into salvation. Free from that disposition of the elder brother. He then continues, You know, it was because of bodily ailment that I preached the gospel to you at first, and though my condition was a trial to you, you did not scorn or despise me, but received me as an angel of God, as Christ Jesus. What then has become of your blessedness? For I testify to you that, if possible, you would have gouged out your eyes and given them to me. For the most part, in the letter to this point, we've seen Paul argue in a very judicial manner. Just very, um, I guess, business-like. And here, we, we kind of get a glimpse of Paul. He kind of turns the page a little bit. And we see this tender side of him. He kind of makes his argument a little bit differently at these verses, right? Um, 12 through, through 20. We see this tender, pastoral loving, relational side of Paul. He's taking the the Galatians on a trip down memory lane. He's saying, do you remember when? And as we stroll with Paul and the Galatians down this trip, uh, for this trip down memory lane, we learn that Paul didn't intend to go to Galatia. We learn that he was stricken with an ailment that, that forced him from his plans. Yet his illness would not be a liability to the gospel. No, In his suffering, he would preach Jesus to the Galatians. God's care for the Galatians here simply amazes me. Paul is wisely planning out his missionary journey, wisely planning out where he's going to take the gospel next. Yet what we see here is that while we might plan, it is God who ultimately directs our steps. Indeed, we should plan with wisdom, but be flexible enough to be guided by the Spirit. 
See, when we submit ourselves to Christ, we will look for opportunities to minister to others in our hardship. Problems will indeed become possibilities. God's plans are often different than ours and always better. Things may not go according to our plans, but they always go according to Jesus' plan. Now, this makes me think of a time not so long ago when Chelsea and I figured out that we were pregnant around Christmas of, of last year a little bit, and it was a surprise. It was a real big surprise. You know, um, I'll tell you that story some other time. But we were not ready for this. In our plans, we would you know, be graduated from seminary. We would have a, a, a nice job, a 401K, a 293B, and a 106C. I think I made up the last two there. But the idea is that we would have everything set in order. Then would come a child. God's plan was different, though. We have a baby now. He's wonderful. I like him. I hope you all like him, too. But God had something better, even though we couldn't see it. Or maybe, maybe think of your own situation. Uh, I'm sure that you hadn't planned to be looking for a pastor in this past year. But just as God would have it, you were. And ultimately, God brought me here. Worked out pretty well. I think anyway, maybe it didn't, and that's not a great example for y'all. <laughs> but the, the point is, is that we have to walk by faith. Even when we can't see, we have to be flexible enough to accept what comes our way. Because even if we don't understand the whys of something, we can know that God is trustworthy. We can know that He is faithful. We can trust Him. Think also we see here one of the most profound truths within Christianity. That God makes Himself glorious even through suffering. It is in weakness that God often displays His strength. See, God does not promise to bless Christians by removing suffering, but to bless Christians through suffering. Jesus suffered not so that we might not suffer, but so that in our suffering we would become like Him. God uses our suffering to bring about good, and problems become possibilities. Sometimes it involves circumstances like Paul's illness, taking him to the Galatians to preach Jesus. Other times it involves a good, refining work in our own lives, in our character, and deep down in our soul. Sometimes it drives us to become more dependent, to have a more beatific vision of the sufficiency of Christ and of His grace as Paul's thorn may have functioned for him. Sometimes, we just don't know why. But we must trust. Like what D.A. Carson says here. He says, When we suffer, there will sometimes be mystery. But will there also be faith? He answers his own question. He says, Yes, if our attention is focused more on the cross and on the God of the cross than on the suffering itself. Will you trust the Lord in your suffering? Will your problems become possibilities? Do you know He's good? Do you trust Him? And are you looking forward to Christ? Or are your hands reaching for the orphanage? Verse 15, What then has become of your blessedness? For I testify that if possible you would have gouged out your eyes and given them to me. Paul's forcing the Galatians to recall how much they really liked him. That when he came to them, they really loved him. That they would give up those things that they treasure so that he might be better off. 
He's asking them, have I now become untrustworthy? Verse 16, have I then become your enemy by telling the truth? Paul wants them to see who the real enemy is, who the false teachers are. He's giving them faithful wounds or kisses on the lips. Proverbs tells us that faithful are the wounds of a friend. And an honest answer is like a kiss on the lips. Paul is giving them both. He's giving them hard truths that they do not necessarily want to hear. I think we can take note of this in our own relationships. Are you willing to say hard things to people? To communicate hard truths? Paul here would rather hold out the gospel than to receive praise. Likewise, we too should love people unselfishly so that we would risk their anger towards us rather than withholding a truth they need to hear. We should love people unselfishly enough that we would risk their anger towards us rather than withholding a truth that they need to hear. We also should be willing to receive kisses on the lips or faithful wounds from friends. After all, um, we don't get mad at the mailman when he brings us our mail, right? He brings bad news, right? The mailman gives us bills or something. We don't get angry at the mailman. That would be nonsensical. So don't be angry with those that communicate truth into your life. Be angry with your sin. Be killing your sin by being in the Spirit. Verse 17, those false teachers are so eager to win your favor, but their intentions are not good. They're trying to shut you off from me so that you will pay attention only to them. If someone is eager to do good things for you, that's all right, but let him do it all the time, not just when I am with you. Paul here is kind of highlighting the difference between his purposes and the purposes of the false teachers. The word zealous here, uh, the word that means zealous here, often can literally be, me- be meant to build up or even to, to puff up. It might be better understood as they are flattering and making much of you so that you will flatter and make much of them. See, Paul's purpose in ministering to the Galatians is the glory of Jesus Christ, the worship of the one true God. In contrast to the Judaizers, the false teachers, their goal is to gain followers and glory, not to Christ, but unto themselves. The Judaizers are zealous to win over the Galatians unto themselves. You may not know this, but a good way to win people to yourself is to tell them what they want to hear. To not communicate that hard truth. To tickle their ears. Have you ever been guilty of this? Tried to make the gospel a little bit more palatable so that someone might receive Christ? Have you ever tried to domesticate Jesus a little bit? He doesn't demand your life and your all. Just come to Him. It'll be okay. Just try Jesus. Have you ever domesticated God in an attempt to make Him more appealing? This again is a false gospel. A pathway to destruction. Now Paul is not aiming to appease the Galatians, but he is in agony as he urges them to imitate Him. Become as I am, he says, as I imitate Christ. He urges them to have Christ formed in or shaped in them. Verse 19, my little children, for whom I am again in the anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. I wish I could be present with you now and change my tone, for I am 
perplexed about you. The imagery here is really kind of shocking and weird. Uh, Paul, man, portrays himself as a, a woman in labor about to give birth. And then he shifts the metaphor and says, until I see Christ formed in you. So it's kind of saying like, I'm giving birth, but I want to see you give birth to Christ within you. It's, it's really weird kind of metaphor. And it would have jolted the Galatians. It would have brought their attention like, what is happening here? The point is, is that he feels as if he's already labored under their salvation. It would be like giving birth to the same child twice. Now, I've never given birth, but I'm husband to my wife who gave birth recently. And I can attest to the fact that she doesn't want to give birth to Elliot all over again. That would be not fun, right? I believe at one point during the whole thing, she's quoted of saying as, Get this baby out of me! And another time of, You did this to me! I think those are faithful quotes of her, though she might deny them. But you see, no, no woman wants to give birth to the same child more than once. No, a good mother eventually wants their child to be born and to go on to maturity, to grow up from milk to solid food, from crawling into walking to graduate from diapers. A good mother wants her children to mature and to be healthy. Likewise, Paul is pointing out how unnatural it would be for him to labor to see the Galatians transformed, to see Christ formed in them again after they've already begun with the Spirit. Do we have to start this whole thing over again, he's kind of saying? It's exhausting. Paul is at his wit's end. That's why he says, I wish I were with you so I could change my tone. You know, he's writing so he can't really respond to them as you might face to face. He's perplexed. He's at the end of his rope, kind of like a parent frustrated with their child. I just don't even know what to do with you. Would Paul, if he were speaking to you today, be perplexed by you? Would he be exhausted with you? Would he need to change his tone? Have you become like Paul, transformed by Christ? Has Christ been formed? Has he been shaped in you? This section of Galatians exhorts us to become like Paul, to be transformed by Jesus Christ. It exhorts us not to look back to our empty past, towards idols, towards weak and worthless things, but towards Jesus Christ. It tells us to not look back and reach for that orphanage, but to recognize and rest in our new home with the family of God. I gave Dr. Moore the first word, and I'll also give him the last. This is the conclusion of his book, or of the chapter of his book. I want to see that orphanage one more time when the boys are a little older, maybe 12 or 14. I plan to make the trip again with them. I want them to see, to feel where they came from. It's hard to imagine now what they'll think of it. They'll probably hate Russian food as much as I do and will look forward to slipping off with me to McDonald's in Moscow when we can find it. At the orphanage, I'm sure their eyes will widen as we walk up those creaking steps into that horror-movie-looking front door. They'll probably go limp inside, just like I did, when they see all those abandoned toddlers peering out from around the corners of the doors inside. Maybe they'll try to replay in their minds the circumstances of the nights that they were born. I'm not sure all that they'll think of the orphanage, but I'm quite sure that they won't call it home. I do not want to see... I do want to see that orphanage again, But more importantly, I want to leave it again. Maybe Benjamin and Timothy and I will take a picture together in front of it before we leave. 
hang on our wall at home. I want to look in the back seat and see no hands reaching backwards. I want to see two young men, maybe wearing sunglasses, looking forward, smiling into the sunshine ahead of them. I can only pray that I will do the same as I see my own orphanage in the rearview mirror. Are you reaching for the orphanage? Or are you looking forward to Christ becoming like you?